This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. We are continuing our series And uh, I'm thrilled to do this with you guys because I think that we need to keep the subject of love and dating and marriage always kind of in the front of the minds of teenagers because teenagers are jumping into relationships, relationships that get very physical very fast, far too often with no guide, with no heading, with no direction in mind. And so every week, I'm asking the question, are you willing to do whatever it takes to have the marriage you've always wanted? And if you've never thought to yourself, well, I'm not really sure what kind of marriage I would want, then maybe this would be a good challenge because, again, teenagers are jumping into dating relationships all the time. Isn't it good that we have a destination, a target, a goal to set us up to work now to set up health for the future? So that that marriage that you've just begun to think about has the opportunity to be fulfilling and beautiful and God-honoring. But it's not going to start the day you say, I do. It's going to start today. Who you become for then is going to begin with who you choose to be now. And so every week I'm opening up with a different question. Are you willing to redefine love? Love is a commitment to choose. To say, I love you to someone is to say, I choose you, and I set myself apart to be yours. Love has never been an emotion. But the good news is that if love is a choice and not an emotion, then you have the the freedom, you have the power to choose wisely who you would love. The second week was, are you willing to embrace the other's differences? And we talked about how men and women are very different, different, and we often process life differently. And the biggest mistake that we make is we assume that the other thinks just like we do, and it causes all kinds of conflict. Then I asked, are you willing to grow first before dating? Because being the right person is more important than finding or getting the right person. Spiritual maturity must have, like we have to grow, you'll need to grow in certain things before jumping into a romantic relationship. Things like having correct priorities, Humility, self-control, wise, predetermined boundaries. Then we asked, are you willing to date differently than the rest of the world? Will dating enhance or weaken your relationship with Jesus? Because Jesus is, is our number one. Then we define dating as two Christians agreeing to companionship towards marriage for God's glory. Then not last week, but two weeks ago, the last time we were in this series, I asked, are you willing to discover instead of seek? Instead of mulling around like some sort of blind person searching for their left shoe, are you willing to surrender to the Lord and let him lead and discover someone instead of trying to seek and and pretending like you're a, a puzzle missing a piece? But no, you're already a whole person in Christ first. And my question for you tonight is, are you willing to wait for sex? Are you willing to do things God's way? Turning your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Paul is talking to the Corinthians that have had some serious issues with people's their, their, their faith crumbling because of sexual sin. And he's writing this letter to them, and he's encouraging them with this. And listen, like he, he uses strong language here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Run, sprint, get away. Think of Joseph whenever Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. He like bolted out of the scene. Flee from sexual immorality. Listen to this. There's, so he's given a command. 
But then he gives a warning. This is why we're going to flee from this. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body, her, her own body. What's he saying? This, he's saying this sin is self-destructive. This is the one right here. Of all, this, all the other sins, this is the one that comes back to bite you hard. Every other sin is outside someone's body, but this one is a person sins against their own body. Verse 19, now he gives us the why. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? So the why, so he's saying, look, here is what I'm commanding you to do. Run from sin. Here's the warning because it's self-destructive. It, it blows up your life. And here's the reason, because you're so incredibly valuable. God himself dwells within you. Why would you sin with the very vessel that God is living in, someone who professes to love and serve him? And listen to this. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Think about that. What price is he talking about? He's talking about the price of the life of his own son who is tortured. The very, the very worst wrath that man could bring against another human being was poured out on the spotless, perfect, loving son of God so that God could purchase your life. So glorify God in your body. Whew, this is huge. Flee from sexual immorality. I remember when I was a kid, I was riding in the backseat with my parents, and my parents traveled a lot. I, mean, I was probably spent eight to 10 hours uh, a day in the car, four or five days a week. And we were traveling through Oregon. If you've been to Oregon, there's a place called Grant's Pass. Now, I don't know what's going on today on Grant's Pass, but at that time, they didn't have guardrails. And we're up in the mountains, and it was snowing. And I remember several times looking out the window and there's just the edge of the car and cliff. There's a reason that the state puts guardrails up for those times. Guardrails aren't supposed to stop the driver from having a great time driving. They're supposed to stop the driver from plummeting into a life-altering, life-destroying move. And God, for his people, loves them so much that he sets up guardrails in our lives. And when it comes to the topic of sex, it seems like God is like, no, you can't have fun. But what he's doing instead is he's setting up these boundaries as a loving father saying, don't go past this ledge. There's nothing but destruction and death here. I want the best for you. Think about a fire in someone's home. If you take the context of a fireplace, and you have the fire in a fireplace, it's warm and beautiful and functional and honestly very romantic. But if you take that same fire and you change the context and you put it out into the middle of the living room rug, now you have something that's dangerous and destructive. Are you following me? We have to have the wisdom to take things and put them into the right context. And God is saying, I've got a context set up for you for this gift I've given you. And whenever you try to rob it out of that context and put it into a different one, it burns things down. Fire belongs in the fireplace, but not in the living room. God is setting up boundaries for sex, not to keep you from freedom, but to keep you for freedom. A marriage between two people that have fought for these boundaries is a free marriage. And God can bless couples that have, have made mistakes and, and stuff and, and get married. And God can bring them through healing and he can heal old wounds and he can strip off baggage. But it is a very challenging process to reach that same kind of freedom that two people that surrender their lives at your age said, I want this. I want freedom for my future marriage. I want to fight for it can have. 
So what is God's context for marriage? And I love it that it begins at the beginning. Genesis chapter 2, verse 21. God has made man. And God, to show man that he needed another, God parades all the animals of creation past him. It says, name them. And as man's going through this, the man comes to the conclusion, there is no one on earth like him. There is no one on earth to partner with him. And then God does probably the coolest miracle that any of us guys would ever be excited about. Beginning in verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. I love this. God didn't go back to the dirt to create women. He, he went and it's part of Adam that he created woman from. There's a unity between husbands and wives that God ordained that can't be found anywhere else in creation. And God set this up right there from the beginning. Then the man said, this, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called a woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. It's a picture of marriage. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So what's the context? What's God's chosen context for sex? It's one man plus one woman plus a marriage covenant before God. Those are God's boundaries. Those are his guardrails. This is where there is freedom. This is where God's best is, is poured out. God wants his people to have the best sex on the planet and what's crazy is everyone else is sabotaging themselves from having God's great gifts. God wants his people to have free marriages, marriages without shame, full of intimacy and transparency and unity, free of baggage, free of anything that would cause separation, free of the anchors that so many people will carry in to their relationships. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, that sex that's tangled with baggage and wounds and regrets and sour memories is not free. Embrace God's freedom by taking God's gift of something that's great and beautiful and warm and, and everything that it should be and put it into the context that he designed it for. But there's this cultural myth that we're constantly fighting. And it's this myth that the best life you can have is to have all the sex you can from whoever you can because it's nothing more than just temporary pleasure. So culture, despite being obsessed with this, it's, it's like every, we can't, every billboard, every commercial, every, every show, every media constantly is obsessed. You would think that they have a real high view of sex, but instead their view is so, so low. They view it as empty. And, and, and so, I don't know, hollow and meaningless. But on the other hand, Christians have a very high view of sex. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Jesus' followers believe that sex is God-honored, life-giving, intimacy-building. We believe that it's something to be treasured, to be honored, and to be protected. We have a high view, but this myth is pervasive. And this is, this is, lean in with me here. This myth is pervasive through our culture. And one of the reasons that it is this way is because we have a very real enemy who is strategically, purposefully out to sabotage God's people, you. Our enemy, Satan the accuser, the ancient tempter, wants you. And he wants to distract you and destroy you. Jesus says that he is like a prowling lion seeking who he can devour. In another place, it says that he comes for nothing more than to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And that's his goal for you. Think about that. It's not like somebody somewhere 
on the other side of social media doesn't like you because of a comment you made. There is someone who is actively trying to sabotage you and destroy your life. And he is using this area to destroy teenagers constantly. Again and again and again in my years of youth ministry, and I've been in youth ministry a while, I've watched teenagers cave in this area and watch their life go to shambles and walk away from the faith again and again and again. And I'll tell you, it's not any different with adults. Oh, that you would, you would hide seeds in your heart from tonight because the same methods the enemy is going to come after you with, he will not stop when you cross 18. He will not stop when you say, I do. He's going to keep coming. So I want, to, I, want, I want to show the battle plan of his intent of how he wants to sabotage and destroy a little bit tonight. Flee from sexual immorality. Why? It's self-destructive. And what's the purpose? You belong to someone else, someone who loved you enough to give it all for you. There's a a legend about Eskimo hunting. And I actually wanted to try to myth bust it, but I can't find anything that says it's not true. So we're going to go with it. But it, it plays out something like this. If there is a wolf that's, that's terrorizing an, an Eskimo village, Inuit, I think is the politically correct term, an Inuit village, they have this really clever way of dealing with this wolf. They will take one of their hunting knives and they'll dip it in blood and they'll let it dry, and then they'll dip it in blood again until they have four or five layers of blood on this hunting knife. Then they'll go out where they know the wolves are coming through, and they will put it handle into the snow with the blade sticking up, this red blade sticking out of white snow, and they'll pack the snow around it. And in the middle of the night, as the wolf or wolves come through, they'll smell the blood and begin to lick the blade of the hunting knife. And soon, it doesn't take long until they've licked through those fine layers of blood and begin to cut their tongues so that the blood that they're tasting is no longer the bait. It is now their own blood they're tasting, but they're honed in on this. And the Eskimo Inuits will come out the next morning and they will find the problem bled out in front of the hunting knife. Our enemy just needs to lure enough in the area of sex so that it would become self-destructive. It just takes a little bit of a lure, just a, a little bit of temptation to our flesh until it just takes its natural course and sabotages your life or mine. And here are three different ways that the enemy uses this area right here to destroy people. And it destroys people on a physical level, on a psychological level, and on a spiritual level. Physically, I'm going to move through this kind of fast, but I do want to make this point clear that he destroys physically. This is going on through sexually transmitted diseases or infections, and it's pervasive. It's worse than you think. Like you're like, oh yeah, but that's somebody else. That's somewhere else. That's not my school. It's not my group of friends. But this is everywhere. And it's like the best kept secret. People are not talking about, well, why would you, right? But follow me through. And I'm just going to run through just briefly. But these are, these are transmitted through fluids, but also through skin-to-skin -skin contact. And I'll let your mind wander, but this can be any skin touching any infected skin, and it's transferred just like that. So... First, let me run through them quickly. Genital herpes. There is no cure. There's only medicine to help outbreaks. Research shows that more than one in six sexually active Americans have this, skin-to-skin -skin contact. HPV, also known as genital warts. The CDC, I got this quote from the CDC. Quote, nearly all sexually active people will get HPV at some time in their life. 14 million are newly infected each year. Now, to give you an idea, there's about 600,000 people living in New Orleans. 14 million contract this every year. 
Syphilis. Again, skin-to-skin contact. Numbers, 35,000 new cases every year. It's up 71% since 2014. Chlamydia, 1.8 million new cases every year. This is called the silent disease because 70 people... 70% of people don't know they have it, but yet they're passing it on. It's incredibly dangerous for women when it's not treated. And a lot of cases of infertility can be traced back to chlamydia. Gonorrhea. 580,000 people are reporting it every year. Half of the people don't know that they have it. You've heard of HIV and AIDS. It's probably one of the more well-knowns. But 37,000 new cases every year. There are 1.2 million presently living with this in the United States. And sadly, this is passed on from even mothers to their children through breastfeeding. It destroys the immune system and can cause death. Hepatitis B, basically liver disease. 1.4 million people are living with chronic Hep B, and there's no cure. Overall stats, if you were to sum all this up, there are 20 million new reported cases of STDs every year. You notice I said reported. How many people do you think are not reporting it? So the number is only astronomically higher from there. And more than half of those 20 million new cases are in people under 24 years old. More than half are under 24 There are 65 million people in the United States currently living with an incurable STD. One in four teens contract an STD every year. Here's the last stat that I'll give you. If you are a virgin and you have sex with someone who's had only one other partner, you have a 70% chance of contracting an STD. Now imagine falling in love with someone. This is the person you want to give the rest of your life to and having to have that conversation that this may be something they have to live with for the rest of their life too. How difficult would that be? The only way to dodge this trap of the enemy is to say, God, I am saving sex for your guardrails. Holy, I'm going to give myself totally to only one person, and that's going to be my spouse. What a beautiful gift to give. Flee sexually immorality. Every other sin is committed outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against their own body. Does this bring weight to that sentence at all? Boy, we have a real enemy. If, you ever, if you're ever dating someone and they say, well, we should have sex because I love you you need to realize what they're really saying is we should have sex because I'm willing to put you at risk. This is destructive physically, but it's also destructive psychologically if you haven't considered this yet. There's this awesome, awesome chemical hormone in all of our brains called oxytocin. Anyone heard of it before? Oxytocin. Ah, this is, this is like one of the coolest ideas God's ever had. Now what this does is it is, it's, it's, excreted into our brains during sex and then for women when they're nursing their babies. And it's this hormone that bonds you emotionally to the person that you're engaged with. And it's this amazing thing. Think what God has done here. What he's done is whenever people follow his guidelines and follow his boundaries and they spend their entire lives only having sex with one other person, they're emotionally bonded again and again and again to one person until the rest of the world is a blurry image and this is their one. The only one that they see. The only person who who has the ability to turn them on and, and excite them because they've been bonded for life to this one person. How amazing is that? What an incredible gift by God for his people. Now, oxytocin, as beautiful as it is, whenever it's taken out of that context and put into the kind of context our culture has, believing this myth becomes actually, it works against us. Because whenever 
whenever the oxytocin is given off with this person, this face, and this body, but then it's this person, this face, and this body, and then this person, the brain becomes numb to it until it, ha- it struggles to attach to any one person anymore. So you have there, this idea of high school years and college years are those years for being sexually explicit and having, having all the, the adventures and everything like that. Oh, and then settle down, settle down, and marry one person actually works against someone because by the time they settle down, they struggle to bond with any one person anymore. And now they're supposed to be sexually faithful for this person, with this person for life. But this has been abused. Consider the dangers. Consider the dangers of pornography, which would play on the brain as multiple partners with every sitting how fast pornography would destroy psychologically someone, how fast it would numb someone. It's almost like Jesus saw this coming. Jesus says this in Matthew 5, verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, adultery in the Greek doesn't just mean cheating on your spouse. Adultery means any sexual sin, any sin that's outside of a marriage contract. He says this, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus recognizes that even lusting from afar, even lusting from the other side of a screen is sexual sin. He knew it. There's this quote from Focus on the Family that I read, and this is coming from a couples therapist, and he's reflecting on husbands that he's counseled who have struggled with pornography. He says this, after viewing material filled with perfectly shaped women doing wild and pervasive acts, a man naturally has difficulty becoming stimulated by his 40-year-old average-looking reserved wife. With the passage of time, they require rougher, more explicit, more deviant kinds of sexual material to get their highs and their sexual turn-ons. It's reminiscent of, of individuals with drug addictions, Over time, it is nearly always an increasing need for more of the stimulant to get the same initial effect. Listen to this. Being married to a willing sexual partner did not solve their problem. Just because they got married didn't solve their pornography addiction. Their addiction and escalation were mainly due to the powerful sexual imagery in their minds, implanted there by exposure. He says this. I've had a number of couples and clients where the wife tearfully reports reported that her husband preferred to self-pleasure to pornography than to make love to her. What would it do to your future marriage, the marriage you've always wanted, for your spouse to not be enough? Oh God, what would it do for you to feel like you weren't enough for your spouse? Satan is destroying future marriages before they begin. Do you see this? Do you see the traps that he's laying? He knows if he can sabotage people now. This is why I, I boldly want to talk about this as a youth pastor with teenagers, because I want you to have the best marriages ever. I want them to be free marriages. I want you to now make the choice that you want awesome in the future. Because we have a very real enemy that wants to sabotage you now. And it's amazing that our world tries to brainwash us to believe that sex is nothing more than harmless pleasure, but it's just the myth of the bloody knife. Just taste a little. If you want something that society doesn't have, you're going to have to do something different than society is doing. Take this amazing gift that God has given and put it into the right context. Put it into the fireplace. So it's destructive. When we take it out of the right context, it's destructive physically, it's destructive psychologically, and it's also destructive spiritually. My dad was, a, was not a man of a whole lot of words. He loved the Lord, he loved me, and it took the length of our driveway for him to give me the sex talk. And it went like this. It, I, I haven't memorized. It was so short. He said this. He said, son, if you have sex with a girl, you give her control over you. You don't want any girl to have control over you. The end. But isn't that amazing? That's, that is so true about our enemy. Like once, once we taste the knife, once we 
we bite the lure, once we give in just a little bit, the enemy reels us in. It's a slippery slope. We're hooked. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Every sin is committed outside the body, but this one right here sins against themselves. We have to, we have to take our lives and reorient them back to our purpose. In Revelation, it's talking about the Ephesian church, and he says this, he says, this one thing I have against you, that you've departed from your first love, but return back to the one you loved at first. And my challenge for you, Elevate, is to keep remembering your first love, and it's not some future spouse, it's not a girlfriend or boyfriend, it's Jesus. He's your number one. He's the one that died to set you free from sin, to set you free from the enemy. Oh, why? Why take the bait? Why tread into this territory? Your body is not your own. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Romans 12.1 says that this is, our, this is our worthy sacrifice, that we would worship God with our bodies. And this is one of the areas that the enemy can sabotage our walks with Jesus so easily, so powerfully, so completely. Sexual sin is always a spiritual infidelity against our God, the one who chose us. But I've got really good news. Maybe, maybe you're in here and you're thinking like, I can't believe I've messed this up already. I, what do I do now? I've got really good news for you. We have a God. Let me start with a story. Uh, in Ezekiel 16, God is laying out an, an analogy, an extended metaphor. And he's, he's making this metaphor about the nation of Israel. And he compares the nation of Israel to a baby born and discarded. And he tells a story like this, that a man is, is walking past a field and he hears the cries of this newborn infant. And he strays into the field to find him. And he finds this baby and the baby's umbilical cord isn't cut and he's covered in, in birth goo. And so he, he rescues this baby from the night air and he takes it home and he raises her. And as he raises her, he puts a ring on her finger and he, he gives her the best clothes and, and he gives her the warmest home and the best place and he just loves her. And when she becomes marrying age, he falls in love with her and he marries her. And he's comparing this to Israel. He brought them out of Egypt. He made them a nation. And then he called this nation to belong to him, that he would belong solely to them and they would belong solely to him. And he's, he's talking about his people. And God has done this with all of us. He's called us to know him, to love him, and, and there's imagery throughout scripture of him being this, this bridegroom and him calling the church his bride, his people his bride. But then something happens. This, this young woman who has it all, a doting, loving husband in the perfect home, she wants something more. And she gets hungry for what's out there. And so she has her first affair. And then she has a second and a third, and, and she's not finding them satisfying. And so she starts, she, she starts not coming home, and she, she goes from one man to the next man to the next man, and, and this, this aching need inside of her won't go away, so she keeps going to the next relationship and the next relationship, and soon she's so, her reputation is so destroyed, and she's so filthy from her lovers that no one even wants her anymore. Soon she's having to use her own money to pay men to sleep with them because she's unwanted. And it's in this state, this, this horrible state, that the husband in this story goes and finds her. And you have to imagine this husband kneeling down to her, and he, he, re, he recalls how he found her, how he loved her, and he gives her an option. He gives her the option to come home. In fact, it uses the word atone. He says he'll atone for what she's done. And the word literally means to cover. He's going to cover her again if she'll return to him. And Ezekiel ends the metaphor there. 
there is no conclusion. There's no satisfying ending because he's speaking to God's people and he's saying, will you be the one who has betrayed your Lord, who has betrayed the loving God that you serve? Will you come home or will you stay in your sin? And I've got good news for you. If there's, if there's, if there's anyone in this room that is like, man, I've, I've blown it. I've got sucked into pornography. I slept with my girlfriend. I slept with my boyfriend or whatever. And, and, and Dom, I hear you, but I don't know how to go back. Like, I, what do I do? Scripture so beautifully lays out God's opportunity again and again and again. He kneels down and he says, I can make you born again. And I believe in all my heart as a youth pastor that God restores people to born-again virgins. Listen, listen to this on this language. This is God talking about sin. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Romans 8, 1 through 2, if there is now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So if you're like, I've blown it, I feel the guilt, I feel the conviction, I've got good news from you. If you're in Christ, you have no condemnation between you and God. For the law of the spirit of life has set you, listen to this, free. He set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old, listen, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. To God, you are washed white as snow. And get this, to that future spouse, it's going to be just as special and significant when you say to them, you know what, I made mistakes, but I've repented and I've chosen every day from this day, from that day to this, to make you my one. I blew it a long time ago but I am yours and I've made this choice for you before I knew you every single day. That's going to be a gift of incalculable value. So how do you fight? How do you, how do you win in this? Because we have serious flesh that fights us. We have an enemy that fights us. We have a culture that's fighting us and inundating us. James chapter four, verse seven through eight. There's so much. I would love to just sit and do a sermon on just these two verses. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submit. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Resist. But how? We don't have the power. We don't have the power to to fight a spiritual enemy that we can't see. So what do we do? Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, oh, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. None of this happens apart from drawing near to God. And then it makes it possible for us to have clean hands, pure hearts, to submit ourselves to him, to resist the devil. So number one in this fight, make a commitment between you and God. Make a commitment to set yourself apart. That's what love means. I choose you and I set myself apart for you. If you right now If you're making the decision, I'm going to love my future spouse with everything that I am, then begin right now to set yourself apart for only them. Make that commitment. And I challenge you to verbalize your commitment to five people. Verbalize it to yourself. Verbalize it to God. Verbalize it to a friend. Verbalize it to a parent. And verbalize it to a boyfriend or girlfriend. This is my commitment that I'm making. Write your commitment down in your Bible. Begin to pray for your spouse that they're going to grow in the Lord and they're choosing holiness like you are. Number two, stay full of God's word. Psalm 119, 9 through 10. Boy, I hung on to this as a teenager. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? And it's not the answer you'd expect. By living according to your word, I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. What's the author saying here? How do I fight for purity? I'm going to saturate myself with God's word. Isn't that amazing? You'd never expect that just being in this on a regular basis and saturating this actually fights sexual temptation, actually fights sexual impurity. It's so cool. Number three, keep physicality 
like how physical you get with a boyfriend or girlfriend, proportional to your level of commitment. Remember how we talked about the dating steps? There was like seven or eight of them. Well, how physical you are with someone should relate to where you are in these steps. And I'll tell you how to work backwards. There's a great verse. It's very brief in Song of Songs. There's a whole book in the Bible about sex, by the way, just so you know. Chapter 8, verse 4, it says this. It says, do not arouse passion until the time is right. So what you do is you say, okay, where is the point of arousal or being turned on? Draw a circle around that and put that in the marriage level. That's, what that, that's reserved for here, God's boundaries. Now, work backwards from that. Number four, be accountable to someone with the same convictions as you. Don't make a friend your accountability partner who just tells you what you want to hear. You don't need a yes man, yes woman friend. You need someone that's going to hold you accountable to the same convictions. Number five, and this one's so crucial. Please don't turn, off on, don't turn your, your ears off on me yet. Avoid media and people and places of temptation. Media is huge. I, I have friends that send me like TikTok videos and I can't stand it because I know at the end of the TikTok video, I don't know what's coming next because half of the time it's absolute garbage. We, we are inundated from everywhere from social media to the TV shows to everything. It's just pounded down our throats. Do everything you can to fight for purity. You, you, you have gate over your over your eyes and over your ears and you get to choose what passes your eyes you get to choose what passes through your ears fight for purity in these areas avoid media avoid the people that bring out temptation if there's a certain group of girls or guys and they're always making sex jokes and they're always talking about who they had sex with avoid those people avoid places of temptation Avoid, duh, avoid the back seat. Avoid parties where this stuff is glorified. Avoid this stuff. Fight for it. And number six, have a plan. The Bible is so gracious. God says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that he'll always make a way of escape. So when you get yourself into a situation, you're like, oh, I didn't want to be here. God has a way of escape. But I'll tell you from experience, I'll tell you from, from just wisdom, that that way of escape gets more narrow the further you chase sin. It gets harder and harder to take. So decide now what you're going to do in moments of temptation. Decide now when things aren't, all the pressure isn't on when you don't have people looking at you, when there isn't someone that's, that's wanting more than what you're willing to give, decide now what you're going to do in those situations. What will you do? Who can you call? Are you willing to do whatever it takes to have the marriage you've always wanted? Are you willing to save sex for God's way? In 1 Corinthians 13, 4, a lot of people call it the love chapter. It begins with this, love is patient. True love waits. Remember what love is. It's not an emotion. An emotion is not patient. No, a choice. A commitment to choose is patient. God's guardrails are for freedom. Uh, my, my wife has told this to teenagers as long as we've been in ministry together. Based on 1 Corinthians 13, 4, she would always say, love is patient. Sex is awesome. Wait for it. I high five her. It's so true that it's worth waiting for. There is a young woman who had waited anxiously for her 16th birthday. And as the, the friends left and the house was empty, it was just her and her parents again, she was excited because her parents were taking her to dinner tonight. But it wasn't just any dinner, it wasn't just any birthday dinner. They had told her in advance that she would finally be allowed to date when she turned 16. And tonight's dinner was them setting up the boundaries for her dating. So she was like, yes. So they finally get to dinner and she's all giddy, you know, in her booth. And she eventually, I mean, she can't even wait for, for the waitress to come. She jumps in. She's like, so can I date whoever I want now? Just hit me. Let's go. 
And our parents said, yes, we've made the agreement. You can date whoever you want. But we do ask that you'll follow one simple rule. And she's like, okay, let's do it. All right, what do you have, what do you have for me? She's waiting for like the, the parent speech, the one that I'm going to give my kids someday, I'm sure. And her father slides over a little white box. And when she opens the box inside, it was one of the most beautiful things she'd ever seen. It was a charm bracelet. And around the charm bracelet were 12 stones. There were six tiny blue stones. And then in between each of those six, there were different stones. There was one that looked like a little pretty piece of gray something. And then there was, there was one that was pink and one that was green, one that was white, one that was red, and one that was crystal clear and reflected every light in the restaurant. And her father began to explain, this charm bracelet is symbolic. Each one of these little stones represents an act of love. For example, the, the gray one represents your first kiss. And the mom jumped in and, and she said, look, it's, it's polished granite. It doesn't seem like it's very expensive, but, but it's part, it's a beautiful part of your bracelet. And she continued, the, the pink one is, is quartz and it represents your first boyfriend. The green one is an emerald. It represents the first time that you say, I love you to someone. And her father steps in and says, the pearl represents your engagement. The ruby represents the first time that you say, I do. And her mother finished. And the diamond represents the first time you give the gift of your virginity. And so she's sitting there and she's like feeling the emotion. She's thinking about all of this and she's watery eyes and everything. She says, well, what about the, the, the blue stones? And her parents said, these are the sapphires. And they remind you constantly of your value, of your purity, of your, of your holiness. Now, here's the one rule attached to this, this dating bracelet thing. When you share one of these firsts with someone, you're going to give the stone that represents that to that boy. And that's our one rule. And she's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. These are expensive. I can't just give these to, away to some, to some boyfriend or, or guy. And her father put his hand on her hand and he said, honey, you are so much more valuable than these rocks. What you have to give is so much more valuable than anything on this bracelet. Why would you give them away to just any Boyfriend to just any guy. And I, I thought, I think it would be best is just my, my reading the rest of this article. After a few weeks after that night, I was hanging out with my friends at the beach. Chad wouldn't swim because I wouldn't swim. I was more interested in reading than getting caked with sand, and he was more interested in sitting with me than swimming with his buddies. He was sweet, he was cute, and he tried to kiss me. I was thrilled for a nanosecond when a certain piece of gray granite flashed through my mind and made me move out of his reach. I was severely annoyed. Annoyed at my parents, annoyed at my bracelet, which had been turned into handcuffs, but most of all, annoyed at myself. I was letting a little gray rock dominate my romantic life. I furiously glared at my bracelet the whole embarrassing walk to the bathhouse. But then God hit me upside the head with a shocking epiphany. If I couldn't give my little chunk of granite, if I, I'm sorry, if I couldn't give up my little chunk of granite, it, was a, it wasn't a priceless gem, but it was still valuable. And things started to make sense after that. Kevin came along eventually. We had fun. We hung out a lot. I thought I might love him. I thought I might tell him so. I thought of my pearl. It turned out that I didn't love him as much as I thought I did. So my parents had been right. They couldn't make me believe the things they wanted me to believe, so they let God and my bracelet do the work instead. Among the four of them, I figured out how valuable I was, how valuable my purity was, how not valuable guys who were just wasting my time and emotions were. If they weren't in it for the whole bracelet, why should they get one part of it? Nate, he thought my bracelet was awesome, so he never tried to push anything. 
but he asked me to marry him. I never knew that so many years of torture could amount to so much happiness. I thought it was silly. I thought it was overrated, but now I've never been more glad of anything in my life. As I gave my husband the charm bracelet in its entirety, I wondered why I found it so hard to hang on to those little rocks when it was so amazing to give them all to the man I truly loved. But it didn't end there. Now our daughter wears it. God has a beautiful, beautiful gift. And we have a very active enemy that is fighting us every step of the way. And I challenge you to remember who you are. A high price was paid for you, for the Lord to choose you, to dwell inside of you as his temple. God wants his people to have the best sex and his boundaries are for freedom, that kind of freedom. Satan uses this kind of sin to get believers to self-destruct physically, psychologically, and spiritually. But those who have sinned in this area can repent and become born-again virgins. So fight to win. Make the commitment. Get into God's word. Keep physicality equal to the level of commitment. Have an accountability partner. Avoid temptation. Have a plan. And I'll leave you with my wife's fun quote. Love is patient. Sex is awesome. Wait for it. So I challenge you tonight to get rid of anything that causes sexual sin in your life. And I also challenge you to recruit an accountability partner who you're going to talk to. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these students. Lord, I pray that you're planting seeds, a hunger and a desire for holiness, for purity. It's so worth it. Thank you, Lord, for the gift that you've given to married couples, to bond them for life. I thank you, Lord, that you're at work in hearts tonight. Lord, bless us over this Christmas vacation. Give us wisdom. Lord, and I, I pray, Lord, that you begin to put a new layer of conviction into your people about the media that they consume. Social media, movies, whatever, music, that you begin to put a whole new conviction in all of us to fight for purity, to fight for holiness. And Lord, bless our, our vacations. Keep us safe. Let us have fun. Let us get back here um, on January 3rd. Oh Lord, we love you. We surrender our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. And a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus.